Welcome to your New Hampshire National Guard podcast. We are always ready, always there. This podcast series is a production of the State Public Affairs Office. Hello, I'm Tech Sergeant Charles Johnston with Public Affairs. I'm joined today by Tech Sergeant Slade Green and Staff Sergeant Tim Huntley, both of the 12th Civil Support Team. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. You're the most senior member, uh, Tech Sergeant Green. Uh, what exactly is the unit's mission? Uh, so we work to with civil authorities to uh, identify, advise, assist, and assess local hazards. Um, you know, whether it's working special security events for NASCAR, Boston Marathon, stuff like that, or it's an actual response call to, say, Exeter Hospital, Rochester State House, uh, where we actually are sending somebody down to identify a substance. Yeah, and it can be an intentional or an unintentional release of an agent. Um, so it can be an actually premeditated uh, domestic terrorism event, or it could be an incident, or it could be something where we don't know until uh, the CSD actually shows up and starts figuring things out. You're one of the most busy units in the state. You go all over, and you've had some real-world missions lately. Can you tell us about some of them? Uh, Tim, if you want to start with the COVID mission, and then we'll get into some actual responses. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like most of the Guard now, uh, one of the big things that the 12 CST has been doing for our mission for basically the past two years is COVID support. So we uh, played a very significant early role in it, I would say, where we had a lot of different organizations and agencies asking for just the basics on how do I protect against you know a viral or a biological agent? Or how do I do testing aseptically so that you can interact with one person who's sick and not carry that to another one? So we did a lot of the advising role we do in that. And then um, we started supplementing them by doing a lot of the rapid testing when testing wasn't a readily available resource and we didn't have a large amount of guardmen spun up on how to test. So we were going to a lot of the high threat areas like uh, I personally did a lot of nursing home visits, things of that nature. And then um, about six months into COVID, we started hitting the election season, which we usually support the Secret Service when they come and have VIP visits while people are on the campaign trail. So they often require testing as soon as they literally touch down in state. And we were working those missions with them anyway. So it's just one of the other things we could do. And our analytical lab was also one of the first um, capable platforms to uh, test for COVID. So they did a lot of support as well. And they did a lot of support for um, hospitals, uh, nursing homes, you name it for that advising in addition to it. Yeah, we had uh, Lieutenant Jordan help set up. He was kind of key instrumental in setting up all the remote locations. So he will get on all the extra beds in place, you know, what resources they needed, getting people in, uh, especially when the vaccination started happening, he was very instrumental in uh, making sure that everything flowed nicely. Um, him, along with our physician assistant and our medic, uh, really had a, a big key role in, in, in helping out with that. You hold a lot of certifications, a lot of training certifications, as a member of the CST, if I'm not mistaken. About how many hours and what types of certifications does the average uh, member hold? So that is uh, <laughs> going to be a long-winded answer. Uh, so baseline is about 700 hours. Um, 
we're expecting everybody to be hazmat techs. Um, so all 22 of us are expected to be able to go downrange and even you know up to the commander getting in a suit if need be. Um, and then on top of that, we have six different sections and a multitude of military occupations um, and Air Force uh, personnel requirements as well. Um, so for me, for the IT certifications, all of our schools are pretty much civilian-based for the most set, um, dealing with chem, bio, rad, nuclear. We have physician assistants that need to do medical schools, our medic uh, on top of that, and then we have people that need to go to decon schools. So uh, everybody usually gets a little scared about coming to the team because they think they're going to be gone all the time, but you're getting a lot of good training uh, that really rounds you out in the state. Um, and a lot of advanced training that you can bring to other units when, when you move on. Um, I, you know, most of my certifications being in the communications section is all civilian-based, uh, very marketable uh, on the civilian side, as well as helping out the state if I, you know, went back to the wing, for instance. Yeah, a lot of our training, it's, um, you know, as civil support team implies, you need to be able to talk the same language and have the same skill sets of those civilian authorities. So they're actually um, a lot of you know, common core kind of classes. So I might go to a course in Albuquerque and there's all kinds of different federal agencies and different military branches there learning that one topic on say radiation. Um, like Sergeant Green was saying, you know, it's usually about 700 hours of cumulative training to get someone fully certified in their position. And that, that obviously takes time when someone comes onto the team we send the, uh, every CST member to a two-month, essentially, CST basic-type course called CSSC in Fort Leonard Wood. Um, some individuals might need to reclass as well to 74 Delta, which is a chem, bio, rad, nuke, um, MOS within the Army side. Um, I don't know what the ASI is for air. Um, yeah, but the uh, majority of our survey section, the guys that go downrange are uh, Army-based. Um, our specialty slots are usually our Air Force people. Uh, our physician assistant, our medic, our comms guys. Um, and then you don't even have to be uh, 74 Delta to get on the team, so that's really nice. Um, we'll take anybody that uh, can get through the board and we think it's going to be able to pick up and that we can trust out, you know, working the Boston Marathon with FBI and state police and making, making smart decisions. So we uh, usually get a, a good pool of some of the best and brightest out of New Hampshire, uh, which is really nice. Um, and then they, they usually work their way up, and then we they move on back uh, to the organization. Usually every three, four years or so, they'll come on, they'll come off. Um, sometimes they come back as an E7, and we you know we get an operations guy that already has you know all that 700 hours of school done, which is nice. So there's met a lot of opportunities, and then. Lately, we've um, the last couple of years or so, we've been really getting back into the National Guard side of things. Um, Sergeant Huntley, uh, being our our our, mar our marksman, uh, <laughs> um, so we've been doing a lot more stuff. Uh, if you want to talk about some of the Army schools that you were uh, getting a chance to go to this year, yeah. Um, so, in addition to all the regular, you know, quote CST schools and specific training we have, we we have to maintain that on the you know the Army side or the Air side as well. Um, and there's a, a ton of schools available just through the New Hampshire National Guard that reinforce that. So we're big into competitive marksmanship and uh, those shooting skills because we do have to arm on most of our missions. Um, I personally do a lot of the competitive shooting stuff. I've enjoyed that. I've heard, you know, other guests on the podcast talk about it, and it's it's all great things. 
Um, but also in my job in particular, you need to have a couple of different skill sets in order to get to wherever that mission might be. And um, we started sending people to schools such as Aerosol. Um, I was recently able to attend Mountain Warfare School through the New Hampshire Guard. Um, and there's a number of different opportunities like that that we like to send individuals to. And then on top of it, you know, we, we are regular guardsmen. The CST is not a separate en- entity, and all of us have our own individual skill sets and backgrounds, like Sergeant Green was talking about, that they come onto the CST with. Um, they have different military skills and backgrounds that they might want to build on, and hopefully they take those skill sets they pick up there and bring it somewhere else in the organization and just make everyone more rounded and better. Fitness is important in the military, especially so on the CST. Yeah, uh, especially for the guys that uh, they'll get in a fully encapsulated suit and they can spend anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour, 45 minutes downrange getting hot. Um, you know, you're getting a body temp reading of 120, 125 inside the suit, um, you know, just on temperature alone. So you got to be uh, cardiovascular fit. And then the other side of that is, you know, if you're in suit and you're in snow, it is also very cold and you got to, you know, be able to maintain your, your temperature that way. And then you have to be cogn- um, cognizant, excuse me, um, while you're doing it, right? So you're getting heat fatigue when you're downrange. And after a certain point, your motor skills start going. You need to, you know, be sharp when you're looking at a lab process, trying to figure out what you're dealing with, you know, you last thing you want to do is knock over a lab because you got a little warm right yeah. uh so uh yeah you gotta kind of really focus on this uh sergeant huntley and his guys do a lot of physical training uh in their uh supplied breathing apparatus um you know you might see them out running on the track or working you know doing basically ruck marches and level a suits uh stuff like that to kind of really get their um get their air time up it's it's crucial because you only have so much time and it's you know you if you get lucky, it's a shed. If, you, if you're not lucky, it's a UNH dorm building that you're searching. So it's really critical. And only having eight personnel over there that are usually the guys that go, guys or gals that go down range, um, you got to be really um, proficient with using your people uh, to get that mission done. That's yeah. the most critical thing. So Yeah, it, it, it comes down to conditioning. Um, you know, like uh, you can't just walk in with a – a 300 out of 300 APFT score and expect to do great in suit. It takes time. It's kind of like, you know, Sergeant Green was saying, like with rucking, like the only way to get better at that is rucking. Um, the only way to get better on your air time, on your suit time, is being on air, being in that suit. And uh, you'll see a new team member. They might only last 35, 40 minutes on a one hour rated bottle. And someone who's been at it for a couple of years might be able to go an hour and 45 minutes plus on that one hour rated bottle. And uh, also, like Sergeant Green was saying, you know, we're a small team. We're limited on bodies. And once you go into that contaminated environment or, as we call it, downrange, you're, you're effectively on your own. It's it's yourself, your teammate, and a backup team on standby. So making sure you're monitoring yourself, making sure, you're, you know, you're taking care of yourself the night before, not just the day of kind of thing, and doing a lot of preventative medicine is huge in that. And on top of that, we do we have a medical section that – before we go down range or into that contaminated zone, they have to do a medical screening on us, and we even wear uh, phys- physiological monitors to uh, to get evaluated by them during mission. But it, you need a good balance of not just being tough, but you need to be mentally flexible when you're down there because 
you don't know what you're going to encounter until you come on it. And you might have to basically go through the filing cabinet of your brain of what's something and I learned in one of those courses <laughs> two years ago that's suddenly relevant now. So it, it requires you know, physical training. It requires constantly staying on top of your game, constantly self-evaluating, figuring out what you're weak at, and um, just attacking it. You've been on the unit, Sergeant Green, for 11 years, and and you were speaking before the show started about an incident dating all the way back to 2003. Uh, yeah, we um, when the unit first started up before my time, uh, I think we got one guy still on the team from then. Uh, he, we had the anthrax mission at UNH, and uh, that was a uh, multi-day cold. Uh, event where they were getting live uh, samples of anthrax off of uh, drumskins, um, and that was one of the first ones. But that was only a couple years after starting up the unit, uh, and that really sent the mission home uh, for the team. And then uh, we've always taken it seriously since then. So, you know, having only 22 of us, a lot of us are obviously gone at training uh, here and there. So it's really you know 18, 16, something like that. Um, you know, it's critical to stay up on all that stuff. And then we were like, you know, we've had extra hospital where, well, there was 12 sick there that we, uh, rushed over and it's, you know, it doesn't, we might not always have to, uh, respond as a whole team, but we're there to augment, uh, civil authorities. Right. So, you know, if they need a piece of equipment that we have, we can send a couple experts down, show them how to use it or go down with them and use it, try to figure out what the substance is. The main thing is that we're not trying to uh, take over any incident or anything like that. We're just really trying to support civil authorities, whether it's local hazmat teams, fire uh, firefighters, to state police, to FBI. Uh, that's really our main goal, whether it's providing communication support, analytical support, um, even just logistics. Um, when we're f- forming our uh, joint hazard assessments teams, you know, we're using our Polaris's and stuff and our gear, and we're getting them around into places that – you know, they're rocking F-450. They can't really get in there. So, yeah. um, like Boston Marathon, that's mostly done on all side-by-sides just to get around traffic and, and do all that stuff. So we're really there to support in any facet that we that's in our mission scope, essentially. Yeah, we always overtrain, um, you know, like anyone should. You know, we train to the standard of a big full-team response and rollout, but um, – we've had to be extremely flexible on some of the real world missions we have. And sometimes our training does emulate that as well. I mean, just in the past year, I can think of missions or training we've done where we've uh, boarded Coast Guard vessels and helped them do search and seizure type operations. Um, We've uh, airloaded a small strike team with the aviation unit. Um, we've gone out to Alaska two years ago, um, flew out there military air and did operations in the Arctic Circle. And constantly we're doing uh, event and mission requests or filling in critical positions on other teams um, in different states all over the country when they need them. Yeah, it's one of the biggest things is that we're pretty scalable and that all the teams around the country are are very similar uh, in setup, and, you know, all the gear is the same. Uh, you know, there might be a little bit of differences here and there, just, you know, us to, say, Louisiana. Um, but when we have large-scale events like Boston Marathon or Super Bowls or stuff like that, we are able to just joint integrate with each other. So there's only 22 of us, but a Super Bowl is a pretty big event. So we'll fly in um, extra bodies from all over the country, um, 
to get the mission done. And, you know, you think of the Boston Marathon, you're trying to protect 26.2 miles. It's a, it's a big undertaking. So we all have the same training. We all have the same gear and the same expectations um, to come fill in for other states uh, or back train. And we are, we're all learning from each other. There's actually 57 other teams in the country. For soldiers and airmen listening who might be interested in joining your ranks one day, about how often do vacancies arise in the unit? Uh, it used to be pretty much like every three, four years. It seems like it's really uh, started mellowing out to a couple positions a year. Uh, really depends on what slots um, come available. Obviously, we have a lot of different military occupations and um, Air Force uh, AFSCs. So the best way is usually um, we're always looking for hungry E5s to get on the team to mm-hmm. groom. Um, and then... You know, after three, four years, they, you know, they get the train down. We get some rock stars. They'll go off. They'll do other things for the organization. And a lot of times they end up coming back as an E7 or an E6 um, to fill in a role. But the training's all done, so it's awesome. We already got somebody that's spun up and knows how to do it and now is bringing a new skill set on. So um, it's pretty much just like any other uh, job posting you see for the guard. Uh, it gets posted out. I mean, 30 days, you do your interview, um, and then – Hopefully, you know, you do a good job and you get hired and, and uh, you get to do some cool events, so get some good training. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and to add to that, I think there's there's two big misconceptions people have when they're interested in the CST. Um, one is they think it's a job they can – or a team they can come on to straight from the civilian sector, and um, unfortunately it's not. There is a baseline of experience we require, so – You can't enli- – you can't – um, you can't enlist as a CST member. Correct. Um, so usually our uh, our entry level positions are E five postings. Um, sometimes we allow E fours, uh, senior E fours, uh, to apply. Sometimes we allow senior E fours to apply. And um, really, the other big misconception is a lot of people think you have to be a seventy four Delta or um, have experience in the Seaburn field to apply, and you don't at all. What we actually commonly look for is people who have skill sets from whatever their MOS is so that they can bring that experience to the team. Um, Anything CST-related experience-wise, we know they're going to get trained here. We know they're going to get opportunities for here. We're not worried about that. What we want is skills from the outside to come on. Yeah, and most of our equipment because of our our mission set is civilian gear. So, um, you know. It's not like we're driving Humvees around and, and going to the Boston Marathon. You know, it's it's all what we call white equipment, civilian equipment. Um, so even coming from any unit, you know, field artillery, public affairs, whatever, it, you're not going to have any experience on it anyway. So uh, it's just all going to be training, and it, it takes a, probably about a good three years if you're starting out as an E5 to, to get really all that stuff underneath you and, and you know, have a really good foot about it. Um, and then not to mention all of our other uh, MOSs and AFSCs that we have. There's a lot of uh, different training. So uh, we have a lot of different skill sets on the team, and it's interesting to see because, you know, there might be six MOSs and or six 74 Deltas, yeah. and not one of those guys is, has the same background at all. So it's very interesting to watch. Yeah, we have, um, I mean, just right now in our current sections, we have – former military police, former aviation, former infantry, former field artillery, uh, just to name a few. So we're, we're looking for those broad backgrounds and um, 
the other thing that goes with it too is we're a bit more fluid within the organization than we have been in years past when teams were initially standing up and needed that um, initial stability. We're able to have people come onto the team that normally wouldn't have thought to come over there and also um, stay there for a number of years, get that good level experience, but then bring that experience from the CST with them to other positions within the AGR network or within even the part-time units within the guard. Um, So we try and really emphasize being fluid. um, But that being said, if someone's interested in applying a team, it's going to take them a considerable amount of time, a couple of years at least, to really get proficient and get good at their job. Um, So really, we're looking for someone who's hungry to learn, um, regardless of the position they're in and regardless of the experience they have. You were, uh, before we started rolling, Sergeant Huntley, we were talking about all the extra things that some of you guys do, like, uh, you know, the uh, the tag match and the Norwegian foot march event, the 18.6 mile uh, <laughs> ruck march that um, about 150 guards, guardsmen attempted. Uh, and you, you were bragging about the unit. You care to put that out there now? Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> That's why we're on the air, right? Um, yeah, so one of the things we're big into is the competitive marksmanship side. Uh, we have a practical purpose for that, and that's that we do arm domestically, and we take that very seriously, and we know there's a lot of liability that comes with it. And we also work with agencies like the Secret Service and the FBI, guys who shoot, or girls who shoot, ladies who shoot, guys and girls who shoot. And um, so that's one of the things that I personally am big into and a couple of the other team members are i've had the opportunity to compete at the national regional and state level and you know just another plug for competitive marksmanship in the hole in the guard i think it's a it's an awesome program that they have going over there yeah i mean we support um and a lot of roles we've been really getting back out there you know doing operation santa claus uh because we have the trailers and stuff so delivering the presents getting that stuff out any way we can that uh if we have the time and the manpower uh, to get people out to, you know, back into the community, right? That's the whole point. Um, working with the, you know, firefighters and stuff. We do do training for them. You know, they might have four shifts, right? And it's really hard to train a fire department. And we'll send guys and girls four days in a row, hit each four shifts to get them spun up on a piece of equipment or get them some suit time or whatever they want to do. So any way we can get out in the community and if it's our mission set or – uh, competitive marksmanship or doing whatever it's that's why we're in the guard right yeah um i mean it's it's great because it's a team that allows you know you to make your your full-time career the national guard but also keep all those civilian connections you have so you know we have someone on the team right now who he's a former firefighter it's a perfect relation builder with those that community of first responders they have because they can talk the language um you know all of us live in and around the state and work, you know, inside and outside the office with people who are first responders in our community. Um, Even some of our medical folks have to stay proficient, and they do that by working with uh, civilian positions and agencies to stay proficient in their job and have real-world relevant experience. And that's what it, it draws back to. Tech Sergeant Green and Staff Sergeant Huntley, thank you for coming on the podcast today to talk about the unit. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to your New Hampshire National Guard podcast.